Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Also here in Washington is Stanton Friedman, a physicist who's been involved in nuclear space and research for such companies as General Electric, Westinghouse, and General Motors. Mr. Friedman, there are books, there are magazine articles, there are television interview programs which have very little time, such as this one. Give it your best shot. If you are seeking to convince the skeptical, what do you point to? I'm seeking to convince the healthy agnostics. The skeptics don't want to listen to the data in my findings. I point to the 2,400-plus landing trace cases, physical changes in the environment collected from 65 countries. I point to the 3,200 cases in Project Blue Book Special Report 14, 20% of which couldn't be explained and are all the characteristics we attribute to flying saucers. I point to the 3,500 pilot sightings collected by a NASA scientist on the West Coast. I point to Bud Hopkins' 140 abductees with a waiting list of 200 and an enormous amount of data in the form of documents, uh, some of them obtained from the government directly, some not so directly, uh, clearly indicating that our planet is being visited, that some UFOs are alien spacecraft, and that we are indeed dealing with a cosmic Watergate. This is Somewhere in the Skies with Ryan Sprague. He worked for 14 years as a nuclear physicist for companies such as General Electric, General Motors, Westinghouse, and McDonnell Douglas. He was a member of the American Nuclear Society, the American Physical Society, and the American Institute of Aeronautics and Astronautics. He held top-secret clearance and worked on some of the most influential classified projects in the United States. But in 1970, he left the professional world of nuclear physics to pursue something completely different. UFOs. Convinced of a legitimate phenomenon and cover-up by the United States government, he spent the next 40-plus years scientifically investigating the UFO phenomenon. In that time, he lectured at over 600 colleges, all 50 U.S. states, 10 Canadian provinces, and over 20 different countries. Respected by scientists, academics, historians, military branches, and researchers alike, he has been deemed the Dean of Ufology. And in March of this year, at the age of 84, he announced his retirement from the UFO research field and public speaking arena. Today, my guest is Stanton T. Friedman. To help celebrate my 50th episode, I sit down with Stanton to talk all about how he got involved with UFOs to begin with, his most memorable experiences throughout the years, and just exactly where we are heading in the unknown future. So, 
without further ado, here is a retrospective conversation with the one and only Stanton T. Friedman. Stan, thank you so much for joining me today on Somewhere in the Skies. Well, I enjoy doing interviews, and I certainly enjoy talking about what's going on in the skies. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I would say so, and we will definitely get into that. I mean, Stan, so the first book I ever read on the UFO topic was Crash at Corona, written by both you and Don Berliner, and I was terrified terrified as a 13-year-old to think that, you know, UFOs are flying around in space, but now they're also crashing on our planet. And that fear turned to obsession. I've been researching ever since. So I would love to hear, you know, for our audience that may not know this story, your origin story, as it were, of how you got involved in all this to begin with. Well, it was one of a number of topics I was interested in. I was, as a kid, I read science fiction. You know, when I was uh, 10 years old in the pulp magazines, I'm old enough to remember the pulps and all that sort of stuff. And then I got into more serious science, and I got a couple of degrees, and I had a habit of buying books and new stuff. And I needed one more book. It's strictly uh, unintentional. Uh, Life just moves on. Um, I needed one more book so I wouldn't have to pay shipping on an order for Marlboro Books in New York. Ah, there's a report on unidentified flying objects. This is 1958, mind you, by Air Force Captain Edward J. Ruppel. Now, I was working on an Air Force-sponsored program, the Aircraft Nuclear Propulsion Department at General Electric. So I had a great deal of respect for the Air Force then, anyway. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, uh, I got the book, figured it was two... $2.99 Two ninety nine or something marked down to a dollar, and because uh, it saved me the shipping costs on that big order of books, it really wasn't costing me anything. So what the heck? We could afford it. If it's nonsense, okay. So I read the book, and it intrigued me. It didn't convince me, but I read 10 more books, and then in the early uh, 1960s, at the University of California, Berkeley Library, I lived at that time... Uh, I had moved from General Electric to Aerojet General Nucleonics, which is east of San Francisco. So I'd go over to Berkeley and I read ten more books, and then I made the had the great epiphany, if you will. I found a copy of something Project Blue Books Special Report Number Fourteen, and a surprising thing was it hadn't been mentioned in any of the ten books that I had read. So that seems strange. Where the heck did this come from? You know, and it was an official government report. And the work I found out later was done by Battelle Memorial Institute in Columbus, Ohio. And it, as it turns out, I have dealings with Battelle. I did a study. How do you like this title for a study? Analysis and Evaluation of Fast and Intermediate Reactors for Space Vehicle Application. One, one important word was left out, Soviet. <laughs> I was looking at the literature that I could get on Russian uh, publications in the scientific areas that would be concerned with developing nuclear power systems for space. And uh, I would go back to the people who had the best collection of Russian literature were Patel Memorial Institute. And turns out they were the people who did Blue Book Special Report 14, even though their name isn't on it. Interesting. Their connection was classified. <laughs> <laughs> so 
that I was intrigued with Patel. I would go back there uh, once a month or so to talk to the people at Patel and then also Air Force uh, people at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. So uh, I, I would uh, go back there. I was very impressed with Patel. But I also would be looking at their UFO stuff while I was coming into it. Right. And that that got me really tooling along because Blue Book Special Report 14, uh, the biggest study ever done for the United States Air Force, mind you, they looked at 3,201 sightings. The report has hundreds of charts, tables, graphs, maps. I was in data heaven. I'm a data fiend. And uh, what I found was I also discovered, how should I put this, official lying. That's a nice way to say that. The press release, which they, the guy who put this privately published version together included, uh, dated 1955, in the press release it says, on the basis of this study, we believe that no objects such as those properly described as flying saucers have overflown the United States. This is Secretary of the Air Force, my last name was Coros. We believe no objects such as those properly described as flying saucers have overflown the United States. Even the unknown 3% could have been identified as conventional phenomena or illusions if more complete observational data had been available. Well, if you only saw the press release, that sounds pretty damn good. <laughs> but I had to report and I'm a data hound, where'd they get this unknown 3%? The unknowns were 21.5%. And 21.5% is not three rounded off. They also further uh, saying that they were full of baloney was they did a cross-comparison between the unknowns, the only ones we're interested in, and the knowns. Remember, the question isn't, are all UFOs alien spacecraft? The question is, are any? You know, are all isotopes fissionable? Well, of course not. But fortunately for us nuclear guys, there's some that are. They also did a quality evaluation. The better the quality of the sightings, the more likely to be unexplainable. And a cross-comparison between unknowns and knowns showed that the probability that the unknowns were mis- just misknowns was less than 1%. The groups did not have the same characteristics at all. So I was shocked by this. And the duration of observation was longer for the unknowns than the knowns, and all kinds of other data that says these darn things are real. And so I don't like being lied to. I worked under security at that time, and I, you know, sometimes have to, how should I say it, tiptoe around the information. But flat out lying, that's another story. So I got determined I want to find out why we're being lied to. I don't like being lied to. And uh, as a scientist, especially. And so uh, I started digging into the literature and digging out more information. And the quest hasn't ended, to tell you the truth. But I joined, the first thing I did was join APRO and NICAP, the two big organizations, which are both defunct now. I joined them to get their monthly newsletters or bi-monthly, whatever it was back then, and uh, try to keep up. There was an active group in Pittsburgh when I finally moved there. I was one of these, you know, life doesn't take the path you expect it to. My dad worked for the same company for 37 years. So, okay, my first job out of college, General Electric. Well, they're a big company. I could work for them. I looked it up. I could retire because I started young when I was 57. That's great. And they've they got several nuclear divisions. No question at all. It's a lifetime career. Wow. Huh. Three years later, 
the program was going down the tubes. I saw the handwriting on the wall and got out, joined another company for, for three years, and then realized they were going down and got another job. <laughs> three or hitches, you know. Totally unexpectedly, you understand. Because right. I was having to move my family. Uh, it's not just walking down the street, okay, I'll drive two miles this way instead of five miles that way. But yeah. uh, uh, moving across this, the country, get to see the country, I guess. Uh, and so I spent 14 years in industry. And on the UFO scene, you know, I was reading the books and stuff. And we set up a group in Pittsburgh. Um, a NICAP subcommittee is what they had at that time. Then we set up on our own because we didn't like them telling us what we should be doing. From the NICAP was headquartered in Washington. That was Major Kehoe. And we had a bunch of us professional people, mostly from Westinghouse where I work. So we set up the group. And I didn't. Uh, I called. I called Frank Edwards. I had gotten to know him when he was in the. Uh, he wrote a book, Flying Saucer: Serious Business. He was a journalist from Indianapolis, and on one of my stints, I worked for General Motors uh, Allison Division, which was working on military compact reactors. Nobody thinks of GM and nuclear reactors, but they were. And uh, got to know Frank. And when I moved to Westinghouse in Pittsburgh, I told Frank, I, I want to go public. You know everybody. Give me some names of the media people, because our group was, were, good things were happening. I, I felt very good about the group. So he gave me a bunch of names. He was a, a wide-ranging journalist. <laughs> Let's put it that way. Yeah. And one of them was the producer of a radio show with a great name, Contact. Perfect. <laughs> For KDKA Pittsburgh, which is the big station in town, the big media outlet. And so I called this producer and thought, uh, heck, I'm a Westinghouse nuclear physicist. Uh, Pittsburgh's kind of a Westinghouse town, or it was. Uh, Westinghouse has kind of gone down the tubes, but uh, uh, to some extent. Uh, and so uh, I thought you might want me to have me as a guest on your show, Contact. Don't call us, we'll call you. Okay, what the heck? Well, less than a month later, at 6.30 in the evening, I get a call from the, this producer. Uh, we had a cancellation. Any chance you could do the show tonight at 7 o'clock? <laughs> 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 well, I was close, lived close enough to the station. I have to go down there now. They didn't do it by radio, by telephone at that time. Right. So I said, yeah, yeah, I can do that. So I went down to the show. Now, admittedly, I wasn't as sharp at dealing with nasty, noisy negativists then as I am now. I've heard all the anti-arguments. <laughs> right, you acquire that as time goes on, right? Uh, yes. And But anyway, I did the show. And as it happens, a woman at Westinghouse, where I worked at the Astronaut Lab, called me afterwards. She happened to hear the show and said, Stan, we're reading Frank's book and my Frank Edwards' book. Uh, in my book review club. Any chance you could give us uh, a lecture in my living room? Mm, sure, why not? It wasn't too far away. I lived downtown and so forth. So that my first talk was in her living room, uh, a few dozen people. Oh, wow. And the word got out, and I did more. And then the I did the show again. And uh, one day, out of only two days and three years that I drive to work from downtown with Joanne, who was the supervisor at Westinghouse Astronomical Lab. And we were talking, and I was saying, gee, I'd sure like to speak at Carnegie Mellon University, the big university in town. 
And, well, did you talk to the dean? No. I talked to so-and-so, and he wasn't interested. She said, Stan, the dean's my husband. Give him a call. He's heard you on the radio. <laughs> oh, okay. And so I called Gene, his name was, and we set a date right away uh, four weeks later. And the last question was, uh, how much do you want? Well, I, it was during the day, so I'd have to take some time off work. So I figured I ought to at least get recovered of my lost pay. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I, how about a hundred dollars? Thinking he'd knock me down to fifty, you understand? <laughs> and uh, sure. And then he told me because I knew his wife what he was paying the other speakers in the series: fifteen hundred, seventeen hundred. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so, but. The, the talk went extremely well. We had a big crowd, uh, no nasty questions or anything. And he wrote a nice letter to the agent from whom we had booked all these other people. And they booked me at a breakthrough talk, the Engineering Society of Detroit. Wow. 300 bucks in expenses. I'm in the big time here. <laughs> <laughs> big top, yep. <laughs> well, what... What really shocked me, and I must admit I was surprised, they were sold out two weeks in advance for 1,008 people for dinner and a talk, and there were no negative questions. Now, that couldn't help but impress me. In the Engineering Society of Detroit, we're not talking about little ladies in tennis shoes, you know, or coats with tin hats on. Yeah. Uh, and, again, there were no negative questions. And then... Another talk that really impressed me was the local section of the American Institute of Aeronautics and Astronautics got together with the, uh, I guess it was the Nuclear Society, there were two groups, sponsored a, a joint lecture. We had over 400 people there. And again, some management at Westinghouse was there because it was well publicized and no negative questions and stuff. That had an impact because uh, I got a call from somebody at Los Alamos. Stan, I understand you're giving lectures about flying saucers. Uh, typically, those flying saucers aren't real. I said, oh, yeah. He said, well, how about speaking to the local section of the American Nuclear Society? I said, oh, I'd be delighted to. No, I mean on an expense account, Stan. <laughs> well, I, I don't make those decisions. I'll ask management. Now, I'm a member of the American Nuclear Society. Westinghouse was a corporate member. And of course, Los Alamos was as well. And they said yes. So they paid for me to go on an expense account from Pittsburgh to Los Alamos to give a lecture. And that was pretty neat because they had over 400 people, one of the best crowds they ever had. How can I not be respectful of that audience? I had been to Los Alamos on business, nuclear rockets and things like that. These are professional people, you know. Yeah. So when I get a good response from these kinds of people, that affects me. I, I'm, I'm doing something useful in sections of the American Institute of Aeronautics and Astronautics and Engineering Society. more besides, you know. So it was in these circles, and I stress that because people tend to think, well, the only people interested were nutty groups, you know, the Tenet crowd. Well, it wasn't like that at all. Absolutely, and I mean, I mean, since then, you've done like. God, 600 college campuses, every U.S. state, 10 Canadian provinces. Like, I've heard you, you 19 know. 19 other countries. 19 <laughs> other countries. That's incredible. These, these aren't just, I think, like people think, these small little groups of like 10, 12 people who are all hardcore no. believers. These are people that have genuine questions and they want answers. And, you know, the fact that, you know, 
the people you're speaking to, you know, at Los Alamos and all of these prestigious places, how how was the response? You said, you know, it, it, was, it was good. Great. Yeah. Well, I judge by the question and answer period. Right, you know, right. Like coming at me. And uh, <laughs> I remember at, at one lecture, first guy up in the uh, question and answer period, I've never heard so much nonsense in one night in my life. Uh, that's a great way to start, you know. And uh, how did I pick him? Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I said, can you please be more specific, sir? I'm glad I said that. I don't know if you would have asked me. I don't know what I would have said I would say, but that's what I did say. Mm-hmm. Well, you said that Betty and Barney Hill were taken uh, to Zeta Reticuli and back in two hours. I said, no, sir. What I said was they were taken on board a craft. Uh, they didn't go anywhere. And then were a couple more equally uninformed questions. And then finally, so after the third one, somebody in the which I had answered, and uh, somebody in the audience says, how about taking some sensible questions? <laughs> <laughs> this guy got up and left, and I said, I'll take your question, but who was that? Obviously, I irked him. Well, it turns out he was a professor of physics. Okay. He hadn't heard what I said at all. So it alerted me to the fact that you can come on pretty strong and you won't get a hard, respectable hard time from people. You know what I mean? Yeah. There's, there's nothing wrong with asking questions. And uh, one one guy in a question and answer period, uh, I had given some data on a Gallup poll showing that the greater the education, the more likely to believe in flying saucers, which comes as a surprise to a lot of people. He said, how about polling this audience? I said, well, this is uh, University of Manitoba in Winnipeg, about 600 people. They were sitting in the aisles. I said, well, I normally, I'm the one who sticks his neck out. I'm not asking the audience. So he said, well, I don't think anybody mind. And people clapped. They'd heard my lecture already, you understand. And so I said, okay, I'll ask two questions. How many believe no UFOs are intelligently controlled extraterrestrial spacecraft? And how many believe some UFOs are intelligently controlled extraterrestrial spacecraft? I asked those two questions separately. I told them what I was going to ask. More than 90% said they thought some were. It's reassuring to me, in other words, having gone through all this with all these places and stuff, that even though people are always saying to me, oh, you must get a hard time, I don't. I really don't. I'm not a masochist. I, I don't do this, you know, to strain the nasty, noisy, negativist. I do this to present information. And, you know, I'm a little sneaky. Usually about five large-scale scientific studies. Describe what's in them, show a slide, they go with it, and so forth. And then I casually ask, how many people here have read this? So typically, you know, I might get five <laughs> <laughs> if you're lucky, yeah. Yeah. And so I know that most people haven't looked at the evidence, and I've been told by people that they were completely unaware of all this data that I present, because I'm a data and evidence man. Uh, I talk about not only Blue Book Special Report 14, I have copies for sale, because it wouldn't be fair for me to say, oh, there's this wonderful study. Well, I don't know where you can get a copy, but... Uh, 
uh, that's not crooked, uh, because then maybe you're lying. You know, maybe it doesn't say what you say it says, et cetera. So here, here, here are copies, uh, autograph. <laughs> yeah, yeah, backing backing it up. I think that's important. And, you know, next week we have Cheryl Costa on the show who wrote a book about data. And she told a wonderful story yeah. about showing you the book, and you told her, finally, someone's doing data. <laughs> I thought that was hilarious. Well, it's true. That's a rare book because it's got all kinds of information about who see things and, and stuff. And it's a big fat report. It's, it's not 20 pages kind of thing. Right. A couple hundred. And so I hope she sells a ton of them because, darn it, conclusions about controversial subjects should be based on evidence, not feelings, not theoretical, not uh, research by proclamation, which is what I run across a lot. Uh, from the noisy negativists. And so I like to have the data in my pocket, so to speak. Why is it that most people don't believe in UFOs? Well, you know, what's a reasonable number? Yeah. 20%? That's a lot. Especially when the airport says 3%. <laughs> right. I, I found there's great interest all over the world, and people are interested. They ask reasonable questions. And Sometimes I have to say, I don't know. You know, I, I, I don't tell them, why does the government do that? I say, well, in the first place, let's make clear, I do not speak for the government. I speak for me. Yeah. <laughs> so I can only hypothesize. On the other hand, I do have some advantages as a speaker and writer about this subject. One, I worked under security for 14 years. I know how the system works. I had clearance for 14 years, a Q clearance, giving me access to nuclear data and stuff like that. Two, I worked on advanced propulsion systems. One of the biggest objections from, quote, scientists, unquote, you can't get here from Stan. Have you forgotten? You know, things can't go faster than the speed of light, and they have to come from hundreds of light years away, and which is nonsense. That's one of the things has changed our perception of where we fit in the scheme of things. You know, when Frank Drake in about 1960 first talked about uh, searching for extraterrestrial intelligence, he meant with radio telescopes, of course, but uh, listening for signals, because the astronomical community can't imagine how anybody could go the astronomical distances, but he thought there might be 6,000 places in the galaxy that could be sending signals. Wow, 6,000! Well, because there aren't many planets, you know. There are many people saying, hey, we got the only solar system, man. That has changed with the Kepler satellite, this incredible device, which goes out and back and did this for several years, looking for planets. Not easy to find, even with a fancy piece of equipment, but if you're above the atmosphere, you can actually spot the planet going across the face of its star. That's that's pretty sensitive is what I'm, I'm a great admirer of the technology and so when you do that holy cow there are planets all over the place absence of evidence is not evidence for absence that holds for flying saucers as well the fact that you don't know about it doesn't mean it's not true and so uh, the, the latest numbers suggest that there's 1.6 planets per star on the average now, what does that mean? They give you a neighborhood survey, so to speak. There are about 10,000 stars within 100 light years of here. It's not that I counted them. The astronomers counted them. And that means there are about 16,000 planets within 100 light years. So we go from Frank's 
6,000 planets to at least 6 billion in the galaxy. So there's several things that our understanding has caused us to change in our view about. One is the number of planets. One is, and the number of stars, too, for that matter. Remember, at one time, we thought there was only one galaxy. Right. <laughs> Sorry, billions of them, too, folks. <laughs> but beyond that, we also, in, in the 1920s, we thought the st- sun, our star, was a mass of burning gas. And that's how the energy is produced. By 1938, we suddenly realized, uh-oh, Ain't no way you can get enough energy by, we know the mass of the sun, and we know the energy output and stuff. Somebody, very smart physicist, figured out that it was nuclear fusion, which nobody knew anything about before that, really. Uh, Hydrogen and helium and uh, heavy hydrogen and stuff like that. And they were talking about uh, an incredible increase in the amount of energy per pound of stuff. Uh, and, and you can see that if you take a big bomb in World War II, it released the energy of about 10 tons of dynamite and make a big hole in the ground, too. It was called a blockbuster. Well, the first atomic bomb, a fission device in 1945, released the energy of 15,000 tons of dynamite. Not 10, but 15,000. The first fusion device, fusion is what powers all the stars, the first fusion device released the energy of 10 million tons of dynamite. That was a huge bomb in 1952. And the Russians sent one off in uh, 61, I guess it was, Tsarbamba, 50 million tons of dynamite, one stinking weapon. Uh, I mean, and the important, the reason I go through this is that suddenly you've got not only a way of mass destruction, but propulsion to the stars. Exactly, yeah. And I worked on a study of fusion propulsion for deep space travel in 1962 at General Nucleonics. My boss was John Luce. Uh, Dr. Luce was a brilliant guy. He, had worked, he was head of the fusion work at Oak Ridge, and we hired him away. And uh, he had 40 patents. This was a clever man, gentleman, too. And we did a study and concluded that, well, if you want to put out the dough, you can go, I put it simply. Right, <laughs> but, uh, right. It won't be cheap. And when I was working, when I say it won't be cheap, many people have no idea, because they don't work in that crazy world of advanced technology development. When I was working on nuclear airplanes in 1958 at GE, uh, our budget that year was $100 million. We employed 3,400 people, of whom 1,100 were engineers and scientists. We're not talking about six professors and 12 grad students here. They're, they're big programs. The stealth aircraft was developed at $10 billion over 10 years in secret for Lockheed. So uh, that, that's an important part of this, in other words. A few guys can't, it's not a question of a few guys getting together and deciding how, well, let's see what we can do about this. It takes a major effort. And the taxpayer, you know, we've had a lot of these big programs. Most of them have gone nowhere. Some of them have gone everywhere kind of thing. The Manhattan Project, for example, nuclear weapons, uh, the stealth aircraft. The, the first, our first spy satellite, the Corona spy satellite. And I have no idea whether that name came because the Roswell incident actually happened just outside Corona. <laughs> right. But... 
the Corona spy satellite, the first 12 launches, they knew that the U-2 was going to get shot down, as it did, because uh, the Russians were getting smarter. They started in, in the 50s. The first 12 launches were failures. Those are expensive. In secret. Nobody knew about it, see, so nobody can say, what are you spending our money for, blowing things up? The 13th one was a success and got more data than all the U-2 flights that had preceded it about what was going on in Russia. I mean, a satellite, you know, is in constant operation and it's spending a lot of time going right over the Soviet Union. The whole program was done in secret. And I love the way they got their data back. They deorbited the film canisters, <laughs> which were caught in the air by Air Force planes. He released them over the Pacific. And, of course, he knew where things were going, and, and orbits are predictable and so forth. But it's kind of a different way of getting data back, isn't it? But, yeah, uh, absolutely. Well, you've got a problem. You've got a solution. You don't have a better solution. We need the information. Let's do it. And when it comes to national defense, uh, cost is not the paramount concern. You know what I mean? Yeah. How much is it going to cost? Well, okay, if that's what it costs, that's what we'll spend. Because it was absolutely essential that we know whether the Russians were gearing up to attack us. Yeah. There were many people who said they were. And so the fact that we could get actual data, evidence, that showed that they weren't building up all over was very important and probably kept us from having a war because there were many people who would say, well, if they are, we better get them before they get us. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Can you imagine what that would have resulted in? You know, I'll drop my bomb, then you drop yours. And, you know, we have a long history of uh, underestimating the Russians. In 1948, uh, General Leslie Groves, who headed our nuclear weapons, the Manhattan Project, was asked, how long do you think it'll take before the Russians build a nuclear weapon? Well, he went on for some time that the Russians, you know, didn't. they had lost 20 million people during the war. They didn't have the industrial capacity we had. They'd been bombed all the hell. Uh, it'd probably take them at least eight years. Well, said this in August of 48. About 13 months later, the Russians set off their first bomb. We had vastly underestimated them. We did not have, uh, in two ways, we didn't have a radar net. What do we got to worry about? You know, no. And then we thought they didn't have any big airplanes. They certainly didn't show any during the war. And then all of a sudden, at one of these big May Day uh, celebrations, I'll call it, here come all these big airplanes. Son of a gun. They look just like B-29s. What they had done, we had left the B-29 over there was bringing Lend-Lease stuff, and there was some something wrong with it, and they couldn't send it back. And they copied it. Chinese copy, if you mm -hmm, will. Mm -hmm. And they built a whole bunch of these, these stupid, you know, Eastern Europeans. They don't have Harvard and Yale, after all. Well, that, that was very much the attitude, and it cost us, because that gave them a chance to catch up much more than they would otherwise if we had recognized that they had the capability. Yeah, they'd gone through a war, but that didn't mean they were stupid. There had been Nobel Prizes given to Russian scientists, believe it or not, guys. But uh, and I'm sensitive about this because my all four of my grandparents were Russians. So. That's understandable. Absolutely. What I'm saying is things move in mysterious ways in this world of our why things get done or don't get done, who does them, and so forth. 
can be totally wrong. And, you know, I, I've talked, my uh, uncle had come over to the United States from Germany in 1938, and he had tried to get more of the family to come with him because he saw the handwriting on the wall, and Hitler was talking about what he was going to do, and mm -hmm. Jews were not uh, in good shape over there. But he couldn't get relatives. This is Germany, the land of Goethe and Beethoven. You know, they wouldn't do stuff like that. That's crazy. So they wouldn't leave, and they got slaughtered in the concentration camps. Because it's hard to believe that other Earthlings will behave that badly toward other Earthlings, you know? Yeah, until it happens. Yeah, after it happens. Oh, yeah. I guess we should have realized that. Yeah. But what I'm saying is we make judgments often based on insufficient information. It's one of the things that characterizes the attitude of the astronomical community about UFOs. They don't think you can get here from there. They don't think people can keep secrets. They don't think there's any evidence. And so, therefore, they're not going to look for any evidence. And it's a constant problem. When I look at astronomical texts, where's the reference to the large-scale scientific studies about UFOs? Oh, they'll dismiss UFOs, all right. And my height, my college classmate, uh, Carl Sagan, for three years, uh, in two different books said there are interesting sightings that aren't reliable. There are reliable sightings that aren't interesting, but there are no interesting and reliable sightings. No evidence was provided to substantiate this totally false statement. It's exactly the opposite. The Blue Book Special Report 14 showed the better the quality of the sighting, the reliability, the more likely to be unexplainable. But don't bother me with the facts. My mind's made up. And that same applies, so you can't get here from there. Now, why would anybody expect an astronomer to know anything about advanced propulsion systems? Think about that. That's not his ballawick. And I worked on nuclear airplanes, nuclear rockets, and I wonder how many people listening are aware that in 1969, three different organizations operated nuclear fission rocket reactor propulsion systems on the ground. These weren't little toys. Uh, at Westinghouse, we tested the NRX A6, fancy type. <laughs> it was less than eight feet in diameter. Liquid hydrogen propellant went in very cold and came out at 4,000 degrees. The power level was 1,000, in our case, 1,100 megawatts. Now, Hoover Dam produces 2,000 megawatts. Hoover Dam is enormous. <laughs> Ours was 1,100 megawatts. Aerojet tested one at 1,000 megawatts. And Los Alamos Scientific Laboratory tested the Big Daddy Phoebus 2B nuclear rocket reactor propulsion system, also under 8 feet in diameter, and also with an exhaust temperature of 4,000 degrees. Not much works at 4,000 degrees that we know how to make, I better add. And uh, the power level was 4,000 megawatts twice Hoover Dam. Now, we, these were all successful, and we were so delighted because we listened, and we didn't know whether our system would work well. <laughs> Nobody had done it before. Yeah, right. <laughs> and what joy. And they canceled the damn program. You know, that, 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 that's weird. Why would you do that? Okay, so we have this idea of, like, you know, the physics and the propulsion behind it, and then you have the people who 
who relate this to the UFO topic. And one of the cases you brought up was Betty and Barney Hill and the idea of like, how could they get here? This, that, where did the hills go? I would love to know how you got involved with a Betty and Barney Hill case and with working on your, your, your books with Kathleen Martin. I read the book, The Interrupted Journey by John Fuller, the Betty and Barney Hill story. And then I had the lucky opportunity going back to Westinghouse again. I did did media stuff there, and the guys from the, the same talk show that I had been on that got me moving along called me and said, uh, we're bringing Betty and Barney Hill to town. We thought you might like to know. And they told me where they were staying, which mm-hmm. is very unusual. That's usually not stuff, information you give out. So I called, and I had dinner with them. This is about 65, 1965 or so. And I was listening to see if they'd said anything that expanded upon what was in the book, you know, were they going to exaggerate? And they weren't. I was very favorably impressed with them. I mean, Betty is a social worker. Barney's a civil rights, uh, I mean, activist and worked for the post office. But I was very impressed. And then I was the first to do work on, I encouraged Marjorie Fish on the Betty and Barney Hill star, uh, Betty Hill star map, I got a call from Coral Lorenzen at APRO, the Aerial Phenomena Research Organization. Marjorie had asked her for the names of any scientists that could maybe she could work with or talk to or so forth. And she called me and, you know, can I give her your name and so forth? And I said, oh, sure, I'd be delighted. And so I was traveling a great deal and I was near Toledo, Ohio. I stopped by to see Marjorie, saw some of her star map models. I was the first to publish about her star map models, indicating they came from Zeta 1 or Zeta 2 reticuli in the constellation of reticulum 39 light years away as it happens. So I got involved early on published a paper in Saga Magazine about the star map with uh, Bobby Ansley Taranda. Uh, I wasn't writing much myself at that time. worked with other people. That, then I encouraged Terry Dickinson, who was editor of Astronomy Magazine. I'd gotten to know him. He came to one of my lectures in Milwaukee, and uh, he's still around. He's not editing. He's retired, like I'm supposed to be at the end of this year. <laughs> Oh yeah, we'll we'll get into that a little later for sure. <laughs> Don't think I wasn't going to bring that up. Well, the the, the kicker is that uh, the response to the article in Astronomy Magazine, uh, which he did at my suggestion, and talked to a lot of people. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. I didn't force his hand at all got more reaction than anything they'd ever published before. So they published a number of letters over the next year, and then they put out a 32-page full-color booklet, the Zeta Reticuli incident. They immediately sold 10,000 copies, which is unheard of for this kind of thing. And then the publisher was put under a lot of pressure, and they decided to sell the rest of them. They printed 30,000 copies, I think, and uh, they made me an offer I couldn't refuse, and I wound up with 16,000 copies in my garage. <laughs> sold them all. <laughs> wow. I wish I had some, I'd sell them again. Yeah. Beautiful color, 32-page, full-color, uh, Zeta Reticulates. But, but meanwhile, I had seen Betty. Oh, I was working on a movie, UFOs Are Real, and visited her with a camera crew. We had done the uh, Tomorrow Show together, Betty and I, with Tom Snyder, and I have to give him credit for something. Uh, some media people are really worthwhile. He was one of them. Uh, Merv Griffin was another. But with Tom, uh, he brought Betty out first. Then he brought me out. I was in the, the green room, and there was no audience, and we were taping segments. And I said, you know, I told him, I said, the public won't know that Betty's a social worker. Is a very respectable individual. She's not the woman who's scrubbing the floor. And uh, so the first question when we came back on is he asked Betty about her background. So I give him credit for that. Not everybody would do that. Right. And then something else. At the end of the show, he stood up. He had been sitting down all the time. Son of a gun. He's about six foot seven. And Betty is five feet. And I'm five nine and a half on a good day. (laughs) (laughs) What I'm saying is he could be a very intimidating presence if he chose to use that. But he didn't. And I give him a lot of credit for listening to my suggestion in the first place and for not intimidating us. It was a good discussion, a good program. I really enjoyed doing it. And with Merv, uh, he was a pleasure. He asked such sensible questions. And I did a show twice, actually. But after the first show, we had a live audience. I asked him, I said, gee, that, that was fun. I really enjoyed that because he, he was sharp. And he said to me, just the two of us standing there, he said, I try to keep the show at a level of after-dinner conversation. You're having friends over for dinner. And what kind of questions would they ask? And he did a great job of that. And Merv isn't a scientist, but boy, he was a very bright guy. You know, I, I really appreciated the fact that uh, he, had, he had done some work. He asked sensible questions. He was cordial. He represented the audience in a very clever kind of way. 
so some of these guys really serve a useful purpose. Not everybody. But uh, so I, I, I've been to Betty's house, had been several times. Uh, and that's how Kathy got to know me. And uh, she once told me that Betty had said, if you ever need any help, there's one guy you can trust, and that's Stan Friedman. <laughs> so we did three books. And uh, they're all listed at my website, incidentally, www.stantonfriedman.com. And uh, the ones by the three of us are autographed by both of us. We use book plates. So everything I send out gets is autographed. And look, I know I, I put myself in the people's place. They're, they're buying a book, and we have discount prices, but still. Uh, don't they deserve an autograph? And just so they know it's coming from me and not from some bookstore. I got nothing against bookstores. They sell my book. <laughs> <laughs> No, that's a good but, point, though. It's that extra personal touch. Yeah, and uh, I can say I'm on the internet, uh, com. Better spell Friedman right, though, F-R-I-E-D-M-A-N. Well, Stan, one of the other ones cases I wanted to get in with you, um, which you you know more than anyone else on this one, what I always found fascinating is how how you basically helped break the story of Roswell when you met with Jesse Marcel. I would love if you could tell us that that story um, before we, we move on here okay. to some listening Well, I was questions. doing a, a, a television interview in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, before speaking at Louisiana State University. It was at the local television station. I was supposed to do three interviews. And uh, the guy was very helpful and uh, nice. And, and he said, you know, the guy you really got to talk to is Jesse Marcel. I said, oh, who's he? I'd never heard of him. His next sentence changed my life. He handled wreckage of one of those saucers you're interested in when he was in the military. What? And he wasn't joking. There was nobody around. He wasn't trying to impress anybody. He was telling me the fact. Well, so what do you know about him? Well, he lives in Houma, H-O-U-M-A. I didn't know where Houma was <laughs> in Louisiana, but uh, he's a great guy. You ought to talk to him. So the next day, I was at the airport early, and I called information. Some listeners may not be aware. That's what you used to do when you wanted a phone number, and you didn't go to a computer because you didn't have one to go to. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> called the operator in Homa, and there was a listing for a Jesse A. Marcel, and I called him, told him I was a nuclear physicist, I'd had a clearance for 14 years, and so forth. Trying to impress him that, you know, I'd been around a bit, and so he told me a story. People said, why did he talk to you? Well, I wasn't threatening to him. I, I impressed him with being nuclear. Remember, he was the intelligence officer for the only atomic bombing group in the entire world which was based at Roswell. The noisy negativists forget to tell you that usually. Yeah, just yeah. a bunch of ding GIs. But yeah, they happen to be the guys who dropped the bombs on uh, the Alamogordo. They set off the bomb, and then the uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and two more in Operation Crossroads, and so forth. I was the only group in the world like that at that time. And so I was very impressed with Jesse. This is a phone conversation. I got other names of people I can talk to. In the next, uh, I shared that with Bill Moore, and in the next year or so, we talked to 60 people connected with the event. And, yeah, I got lucky when I called the, uh, I, I had a look in uh, editor and publisher. Is there a newspaper in Roswell? What do I know about Roswell? <laughs> <laughs> I'll be there in July. But, uh, uh, yeah, the Roswell Daily Record. So I called the record to find out something about the town. And 
the fact that it was the 509th that was there, the, the only atomic bombing group in the world. And uh, asked, I, was, I called the newspaper, and I, had, I, I found an article. Uh, we found a date. We found some articles in newspapers. So I called the newspaper, and I said, I've got an article here that says, uh, got him Walter Hout or Hot, uh was a public information officer for the base. And before I could finish the sentence, oh, his wife works here. so i talked to his wife and uh then i talked to walter and then he was a huge help because not only was he a public information officer which he was for the base but he was a world war ii bombardier more than 20 missions over japan this wasn't a dink again and remember he he actually dropped the instrument package over one of those atom bomb tests yeah yeah. And you use your best guys to do that, because if you don't get it in the right place at the right time, you've wasted a bomb, and at that time we didn't have bombs to waste. So Walter was more than a public information officer, and he knew many of the people, helped me find other people, and the big thing is he had a base yearbook, which he made a copy of for me. And I'd call him and say, hey, do you know where any of these guys are? Well, I remember Joe, and I, last I heard he was in uh, Oshkosh, or, you know, that was a... a big help. One thing I learned, and this is a lesson for investigators, which I didn't know when I started. You talk to somebody. Yeah, I was there at the base at that time. They'll remember Colonel Blanchard, and many of them remember Jesse Marcel because he was the intelligence officer. You remember anybody else who was there? Ah, come on now. It was 40 years ago. You know, uh, no, I don't. Then you keep them in that time frame for another five minutes and then suddenly hey did you talk to joe smith he was there i remember him and then uh, come up with three or four names he wasn't lying to me when he said he didn't remember and he didn't he had to think about it you know how many of us can you know rattle off i can tell you who i went to high school with but uh, not the other people so it, it became an immense amount of labor and i certainly was convinced that we're dealing with a true story and there have been people who make up all kinds of phony baloney stories. Jesse was very impressive. Look, you don't get to be the intelligence officer for the only atomic bombing group in the entire world by being an idiot. It's just, and of course, his son, who was deceased also, was a medical doctor and served in intelligence work. And I still can't believe Jesse Jr. was called back in at age 68 in the uh, reserves he had been and he was flying combat missions in Iraq in the Middle East Yeah. after each 68 130 flying hours over there we were that desperate right Sometimes I think they were trying to get him shot down so he'd shut up <laughs> yeah would it wouldn't be the most crazy way they've uh, tried to have a cover up for sure uh, that's right so, yeah, Roswell has been my, and I'm a member, I was elected into the Roswell UFO Hall of Fame. You'll see it at the museum. And for people who wonder, just to prove that there's interest, last year, the International UFO Museum and Research Center in Roswell, New Mexico, had over 205,000 visitors. In yeah. 
and it's in the middle of nowhere, believe me. Oh, yeah, I've been there. And my God, that was uh, one of the lengthiest drives through a desert I've ever experienced. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I believe it. Because it. Look, it's 200 miles from Albuquerque. Yeah. It's 200 miles from Amarillo. It's 200 miles from El Paso. Look, I grew up in New Jersey. There isn't anything in New Jersey that's 200 miles from where I grew up. <laughs> that's a good point, yeah. Well, it, it makes for a perfect place for something to crash or be tested. That's for damn sure. Well, I'll tell you. People say, well, why? And I had an astronomer in England say to me, why would an alien go to Roswell, to New Mexico? All there is there is sand. I said, you ever been there? Well, no. I said, well, I I, have, I, I take it you're not aware that two of our three nuclear weapons labs are in New Mexico and that White Sands Missile Range is where we're firing all our missiles. Mm-hmm. And they're both there because there aren't many people there. You don't fire missiles with a lot of people around, for goodness sake. <laughs> right. like a mistake. <laughs> the uh, Kirtland Air Force Base is there. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it, it's a natural place to put military installations, Alamogordo Army Airfield and stuff like that. So Roswell was there for that reason. Uh, and, you know, uh, crazy politics. Uh, the base was shut down by Lyndon Johnson because New Mexico didn't vote for him in the election when he won the presidency. Oh, wow. That's a vendetta. Well, Lyndon was known to have strong feelings like that. About yeah. <laughs> That's but, very true. You know, how fair was it to the town? Many of the people worked at the base. It was a big base. Yeah. Uh, they had a 13,000-foot runway, and typically runways are eight or 9,000 feet. And that was because they had big B-36 bombers carrying nuclear weapons, and they needed six feet of concrete for a runaway. How's that? If you go out there now, you go out to where the base was, which is south of town, and you'll see uh, airplanes being cut up. It's a burial ground, if you will, except they don't bury them. They cut them up and sell the parts. Okay. And I don't know of any other place where you can do this. Yeah, really? For all kinds of airplanes, uh, big ones, small ones, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, it, it, it's been a fascinating story for me. And I will be there again uh, probably the last time uh, on the anniversary. They have a, a festival. That's the word. That sounds strange. But uh, <laughs> in July, around the time of the crash anniversary. Right. And uh, I think last year, I don't know, 9,000 people there for the weekend, something like that. That's incredible. And people don't realize, like, how much revenue that brings into that small town every year. They earned it, you know. Yeah, oh, absolutely. canceled the base, which the German Air Force used to fly out of there. It's a great place for flying. It's at 3,500 feet, uh, no mountains close by, you know. Why would you close the facility? Because they didn't vote for him, of course. Right. (laughs) And where did they move it? To Texas. Yeah. Linden's land. That sounds appropriate. Yeah. Stan, well, the the other thing that kind of connects here to Roswell, not kind of, the thing, this is a big part of the Roswell case as well, is another thing that you you worked with and investigated. And I'd really love to hear your thoughts on where you stand on this now. It's the MJ-12 documents. Now, we've had so many people argue this for so many years, but you wrote one of the most definitive books on these documents. So I'd love to hear, you know, now in 2018, what is your stance on these documents? How much is real? How much is baloney? Where do you stand okay. on that? 
most of the MJ-12 documents are phony. Okay, mm-hmm. that's true. Most isotopes aren't fissionable either. Uh, you know, like it or not, most people can't run a mile in four minutes. So <laughs> nobody can. So there are at least three documents that I believe are genuine. The Eisenhower briefing document, the Cutler-Twining memo, and there's another one which doesn't come to mind at the moment. And as proof, uh, <laughs> tells you something about research in the field. Philip Class, who was Mr. Noisy Negativist himself, an avionics editor for Aviation Week and Space Technology, no flying saucers are really in spacecraft. Nah, it's nonsense. And he challenged me on those documents, the Cutler Twining memo in particular. Obviously, the memos are fraud because it's done in the large PICA type, but I've got nine documents here done from the National Security Council, which name is at the top, and they're all done in elite type. So I challenge you to find any other genuine documents found in the same size and style type, and I'll give you $100 each up to a maximum of 10. <laughs> uh, he did this rather publicly, and you have 60 days. Well, okay, I immediately went to my files, and unlike, it turned out, I didn't know this at the time, but it turned out Phil had never been to the Eisenhower Library or the Truman Library, and I spent weeks at them. And I immediately went to my files, and I had uh, 20 pages done in the same size and style type. They didn't meet all this criteria, but uh, time frame, et cetera. But, so I was going to the Eisenhower Library, and uh, might as well check. And when I went there, it's easy to spot the difference because one type is much bigger than the other one type face. And so I made uh, copies of 14 documents. No doubt about their being genuine. I found them at the Eisenhower Library and uh, made copies of all of them, sent him the copies and, and an invoice for $1,000. He would only pay me for 10, see. And he paid me. And then he got madder in hell when I included a copy of his check in my book. <laughs> <laughs> the audience loves it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, you know, it's typical of the intellectual bankruptcy of the pseudoscience of anti-ufology. Don't bother me with the facts. My mind's made up. And it's such a, a splendid example that he had never been to the library. And it turns out they have like 250,000 pages of NSC documents. And you're telling me they're all typed on the same typewriter? Right. I, I hope people recall that we used to use typewriters before computers were around. <laughs> <laughs> well, the MJ-12 documents, in other words, I'm convinced I did rather extensive work on the 12 members of the group. And I'm especially proud of my discovery, to my total surprise, I will admit, that one of the members was Dr. Donald Howard Menzel, and he was a debunker. He'd written three anti-UFO books. How could he be a member of a group that knew about crash saucers, alien potties, all that sort of stuff? Well, I saw a mention of his name in a document uh, in the Benavar Bush files. He was the chief science advisor in the United States in this time frame. Outstanding uh, individual. And so I followed up on that and had to get permission from three different people to look at his papers at Harvard, the Center for UFO Study, no, uh, UFO, whatever the name of the group was at that time. Uh, I got a research grant, and I went to the Harvard archives after getting permission from three different people to see his papers. Written permission, pain in the neck, but anyway, I I didn't know what I was looking for. Let's see what we find. And there was a a JFK file. Oh, that should be interesting. Yeah. I know his UFO papers were elsewhere, and I've been there too. Kathy and I have gone to the uh, archives. The American Philosophical Society Library has 
his papers and uh, also have his classes papers and so forth. Anyway, and one of the first things I opened up in the JFK files, there's a letter from uh, Menzel to Kennedy, Dear Jack. Turns out they knew each other quite well, even had breakfast together on occasion, both living in the Cambridge area. And there's one area, this is after the election of 1960, when Kennedy was elected president. There's one area I may be of assistance to you. It's with regard to the National Security Agency. I've had a longer continuous association with them, 30 years of anybody. When we are properly cleared to each other, this is telling the president, when we are properly cleared to each other, I can tell you more about this. So I did a lot. It turns out he was a world-class cryptologist. Nobody knew that. He did all kinds of classified work. And I was the first to take note of that. And so suddenly it made sense that he was part of this group. But it was such a shock. And there were people saying, oh, he couldn't lead a double life. I wrote a paper, The Double Life of Donald Menzel. And there are loads of people who led double life. Uh, think of Burgess, Philby, and McLean, the Russian spies who worked for British intelligence mm-hmm, mm-hmm. for f- like 15 years, you know. Yeah. And you've got to be very careful when you're a spy uh, that you don't, reveal, you know, you're, you're having access to information you shouldn't have access to. But uh, once I found Menzel and then saw the connection with the other people, uh, I was able to show that it made absolute sense. And with those three documents and class paying me $1,000 didn't hurt any in terms of the overall picture. And so I think I've dealt with all the arguments with the people who say the documents are fraudulent. Yes, I would showed that a number of documents are fraudulent. So what? I'm not denying that. It'd be natural if some good stuff gets out, you flood the market with crap and hope it rubs off. Yeah. Well, and we all all know, like, these sort of campaigns have been used for years in terms of disinformation, of putting some truths amongst the lies, and that's the only way they can sort of get it out. It's extremely frustrating to have to wade through that, but there are people who will do that due diligence to do that, people like yourself, many other researchers who aren't out there, you know, speaking or... Or, um, you know, on television, they're doing the hard work underground and finding the truth to those things. Well, I have to have evidence in hand before putting my mouth in gears, mm-hmm. I feel. As a scientist, I have that requirement on me. Show it. Mm-hmm. I'll just tell it. And so, and I, frankly, I've been disappointed that so few people have visited all the archives. I've been to 20 archives, yeah. some of them many times. And it's the documents that make the difference. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I mean, Stan, now you mentioned this a little bit earlier. Um, you you made an announcement about, what, maybe a month ago now of your retirement yeah. from the field. And I mean, people were, <laughs> you know, mixed reactions all around, but everyone was like, oh, my God. It's, it's finally happening. Are you kidding me? Like, no. That Am I not so. entitled? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I know, really. <laughs> it, it's funny how that story came out. Uh, I had been interviewed by, uh, I know the reporters at the local paper here, the Fredericton Daily Gleaner, and I'd called one, and I was wanted to promote the fact that I was, uh, and he thought it was an interesting story, that I was going to undertake the debate of the century with Dr. Michael Shermer of the Skeptics Society. Mm, yes. We're supposed to have a big on-stage live debate in Vancouver, British Columbia on April the 8th in an auditorium seating maybe a thousand people for which they were charging a good price. And they were giving us good good fees for the, the two of us. 
And so I talked to this reporter that I've known. He's done other articles about me, and uh, uh, he wrote a nice article. And then I got told the debate had been canceled. No good reason. There wasn't enough interest or something like that. And so I contacted the reporter, and so he said, well, is there anything else, any way I can salvage this? Uh, got anything else that's talk, you're talking about or, you know, any events going on? What can we do? I said, well, yeah, I'm seriously thinking of retiring it before the end of the year. Oh, well, okay. So we talked about that for a while, and so that became the focus for the article, only because the uh, debate had been canceled. <laughs> <laughs> we needed some other uh, some other shock in there, I guess, right? <laughs> yeah, a hook, if you will. And look, I'm going to be 84 in July. Now, I'm still young for my age, it says here in small <laughs> But it's time. Like I say, I read that first book 60 years ago. Yeah. That's a long time. And, you know, it's getting harder to get around and my mind isn't as sharp as it used to be. Don't tell anybody that. <laughs> <laughs> it's true, though. I mean, you sound as sharp as a tack, but I, I understand that. I understand you, you in terms of entitlement. Uh, yeah, I would say so at this point. I mean, you've broke some of the biggest stories in ufology. You've put in the work, and as a younger researcher, I mean, it's paramount to to not... To, to understand that there was an age without the internet, God forbid, where we can just Google something now and it's right there in front of us. <laughs> the fact that you yeah. went to these archives, you went out and you spoke to individuals face to face, that's a rarity for the younger generation these days. So in terms of mm -hmm. earning that, I, I, I would say so. I, I guess my real question would be, Stan, you know, with this news of your retirement, I'd love to know what some of your most favorite or most memorable moments were throughout this entire God, oh 50, 50 plus years of research. I mean, was it a lecture you gave? Was it a debate? Was it a witness you well, spoke to? I know I know, it's probably a very broad question. It, it, there's, there's a mix of things. When it comes to lectures, I'll never forget in Hawaii, supposed to speak, and we lived near San Francisco, and I took my wife. What the hell? Let's go to Hawaii. And got five days, and uh, only have to be there for an afternoon and lecture and stuff. And I called them when we got there and said, you know, you need me to do any radio or television programs. You know, I'm available. I'm here. No, no, just show up. It was an afternoon talk. Here we are in a hall seating over 900 people and there were 20, like 26 people at my lecture. <laughs> <laughs> that was, uh, I mean, I gave a, a good lecture. Uh, you know, it's not their fault, but uh, that was an embarrassing moment. Uh, on the other hand, I had an audience of more than 2,000 in Turkey. Wow. Uh, had a great audience. Uh, Saudi Arabia was interesting. Uh, oh, yeah. I what was that one? Something like a world competitiveness forum or something like that. <laughs> and I'd never heard of the people who called me, and uh, I did some checking around. Is this thing real? <laughs> and uh, then as time went on, and people said, Stan, you're going to Saudi Arabia? Are you crazy? You've forgotten you're Jewish? <laughs> they won't even let you in. So I called the person that I was in contact with. It was a woman, incidentally, which tells you something. Some people think women don't get a chance to hold any positions. Well, they do. Mm -hmm. And I explained to her, I said, look, people are saying, you're going to get there. And they're going to say, you can't come in here. And she said, look, we've had many Jewish speakers at these things. 
no problem at all. And so I went, and there wasn't any problem at all. It was like I was at a meeting of my father's cousin's club. (laughs) People forget Jews and Arabs are both Semites. So that that was an interesting experience. I enjoyed that. Uh, I enjoyed the visits to places I never would have gotten otherwise. I've spoken in Hong Kong. I've spoken in Derry in China, in South Korea, uh, in Australia, uh, Argentina, places like that. Got to Israel, Germany, France, England, Ireland, Scotland, uh, Finland. <laughs> so. Uh, seeing the world, uh, Hungary, Bul- my last foreign talk was Bulgaria. Who would ever, how would I ever get to Bulgaria? Wow. Yeah. I spoke in uh, Poland and Warsaw. Had the Warsaw UFO Society had a big crowd for me. Geographically, how people respond to your talks or the theories you're bringing forward, does it vary from region to region at all? You know, due to like cult- cultural influences? Yeah. I mean, sometimes the talks have been translated, like I didn't speak in Polish, mm-hmm. you know. But uh, they seem, remember, I'm talking about evidence, not beliefs. So. When I can show, show them Blue Book Special Report 14, show them the numbers, you know, numbers tell a story after all, back up what I say, it doesn't seem to matter. They Because the universal response is, I didn't know about that. I never saw in that report, uh, you know, that's that standard. So it, it's very hard for people to reject what you're saying when they have to admit, no, I wasn't aware of that. And when you show it to them. And so... Uh, I found it's a way to see the world, be a ufologist. <laughs> <laughs> Who would have ever thought? <laughs> Not me, I'll yeah. tell you. Uh, my classmates at the University of Chicago would certainly have, what are you doing, Stan? <laughs> oh, I'm lecturing about flying saucers. What would you expect? <laughs> So as a new generation of UFO researchers start to crop up, you know, I'm 33, so I'm no, you know, I'm no young chicken, but I'm also sort of in that that midway point in my research here. What advice would you give to people younger, even younger than I am, in terms of the future of both the UFO field and I guess humanity in general? What advice would you give them the hope, you know, that this is a topic worth pursuing? Well, I think the biggest thing is to make people aware that our understanding of where we fit in the scheme of things has changed drastically. Frank Drake was talking about maybe 6,000 planets that could send signals. That number today might be 6 billion. The fact that there are so many planets is a total surprise to the astronomical community. And the fact that uh, we have the technology. When the British Astronomer Royal in 1956 was asked about space travel by Time magazine, it's utter bilge. What good would it do? Who would pay for it? What we need is better equipment for astronomy. That was the year before Sputnik, and the field that's benefited the most, of course, has been in astronomy. So our attitude about how old the universe is, how big the universe is, how many planets there are. You know, Bishop Usher in 1650 or so was saying that the world was created in 4004 B.C. I don't think he said on a Thursday afternoon, but he (laughs) went back through the Bible about begatting. Now we say, oh, well, they left six zeros out of that. It's four billion years ago that the Earth was created. Four and a half billion it was a half billion between friends. Uh, <laughs> and so these concepts, uh, in the 1920s, uh, the sun produces its energy by uh, burning gas. What do we know about fusion? But fusion is what produces the energy throughout the universe, all the stars. But there's an enormous difference 
And so suddenly what seemed impossible is now possible. Hmm. Space travel. And it was just like uh, a great astronomer in 1902, uh, 1903, uh, October, that if there was one thing he was sure of, man would never fly any distance in a vehicle, maybe with a balloon, but that was two months before the Wright Brothers' first flight. We assume what we don't know doesn't exist. There ain't nothing we don't know. We're smart guys, you know. We're the cream of the cream. And throughout history, that's been shown to be wrong. Jet engines, for example, were left out of town. Base travel was thought to be absurd. And I've seen numbers, you know, how, how heavy a rocket would have to be to get a man to the moon. A million, million tons would have to be. But if you make enough stupid assumptions, you can prove anything is impossible. <laughs> well, assume a single-stage vehicle with a very low exhaust velocity. Pretty soon you've got a huge rocket. That's not how we do things. Engineers' job is to get it done, not to show you all the ways in which it can't be done. Mm -hmm. That's not much use. And so people often aren't aware of their biases and prejudices getting in the way of their evaluation. Thank goodness there are people who say the heck with that. I mean, uh, Billy Mitchell, remember, was court-martialed. He said man would be sinking ships from airplanes. That was in the 20s. In 1941, late November, there was a, an article in the program for the Army-Navy football game and showed a picture of the USS Arizona, this huge battleship. And in the text, it said, nobody's ever sunk a big ship from the sky. That was eight days before Pearl Harbor, and there went the USS Arizona to hmm. the bottom, killing, I forget, 1,100 people, something like that. Yeah. I don't know how to do it, therefore it can't be done, right? No, wrong. (laughs) And so there's a word of caution whenever you find the noisy negativist, because it usually means the flying saucers can't be real, because if they were, I would know about it, seems to be the attitude. But when I'm sneaky, I check my audiences. When I talk about the large-scale studies, I ask how many people have read them. And I think it sobers the audience to realize I'm not the only one who hasn't read that stuff. None of these people have just about. Maybe I better listen to this guy. And I show them the documents or the reports or whatever so they know I'm not just making it up uh, out of my head. And so we need to be very careful about presuming we know what the future is. And if you look around, look at radio. Mm-hmm. There were people who were saying they would never communicate any long distance with radio. What, are you kidding? And that goes back to, say, 1900. And look where we've come with that. And every direction you look, you find that progress comes from doing things differently in an unpredictable way. The future is not an extrapolation of the past. You have to change how you do things. And if we forget that, we step into the potholes of it's impossible. Yeah. When we, what we really mean is, I don't know how to do that, <laughs> but maybe somebody else does, you know, like aliens. And the kicker is, again, if there's been intelligent life in the neighborhood for a billion years, why would it be surprising that they're doing things that we can't do? And that that business of how many places there are. We assume, uh, because Earth is 4.3 light years from the next star over after the sun, that everybody is stuck with. There are loads of stars that have other stars less than a light year away. My favorite stars in the whole case, uh, Zeta 1 and Zeta 2, they're an eighth of a light year apart, for goodness sake. You know, 39 light years from here. That gives you an entirely different perspective. We've got people saying, anybody coming here would have to come from a thousand light years. Absurd. 
Give me five, <laughs> ten, and <laughs> twenty. Exactly. Ah, oh, wow. Well, Stan, I mean, I'm going to be seeing you in Halifax, Nova Scotia, uh, this upcoming May. I'll be speaking at the Esotericon, where you're going to be the keynote speaker at that event oh, as well. Right. So I guess, you know, for any of our listeners who live in that area, I hope they'll come out and see you give this talk. Do you and have any... free, idea? too, I'm told. Yes. How, how rare is that? It's, yeah, it's being put on by your, your nephew, Paul Kimball, who does yeah. so much amazing work in Halifax, you know, with local government and was able to obtain all these speakers to put on a conference for free for the public, which I think is an incredible feat. It's my celebratory swan song. How's that? <laughs> Absolutely. One that I'm so honored to be a part of and one I hope everyone will come to. Well, that being said, Stan, um, one more time, where can we find all of your work, your books? Give that to us. Okay. They're all listed on my website, www.stantonfriedman.com. And you got to spell Friedman, F-R-I-E-D-M-A-N. And it lists my books and other sources like Blue Book Special Report 14. I don't believe it's proper for me to talk about something and say, well, I don't know where you can get that. That's why I've sold a lot of copies of Special Report 14. And so if you want an education, incidentally, in one of my books, Top Secret Magic, about the MJ-12 documents, I list a dozen PhD theses that were done uh, more than 10 years ago, so there are more now. So there is information out there, and I have loads of references. I just finished looking at an old book, First Contacts, The Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence, uh, which was done more than 20 years ago. And there's nothing sensible about flying saucers in it, no references to the big large-scale scientific studies or any of the technology stuff or whatever. Uh, why don't they put pictures of nuclear rocket engines, for goodness sake? <laughs> yeah. They're available. But uh, So my website has the information. So, uh, you know, I believe in interacting and communicating. I've been doing this for a long time. If I didn't enjoy what I was doing, I wouldn't be doing it. You know, after the first 500 lectures, you'd say the hell of a... <laughs> yep. <laughs> I'm over 700 now, so... Yep. Away we go. Well, it's extremely invigorating, you know, as someone who has a couple times been like, I want out of this. It's invigorating to see that it's worth the study. It's worth the research oh, yeah. uh, to keep doing it, to keep looking for those answers, no matter what it is. Like you said, the future is unpredictable, and I think that's extremely exciting. So I can't wait to see where it goes. And I know this isn't the last we've heard from you, Stan. It might be, you know, your retirement from research, but it certainly isn't your retirement from the field overall. So I have to thank you so much for coming on Somewhere in the Skies today. It was an immense pleasure and honor, and uh, I will see you in May. I will see you there, and there won't be any, I hope there won't be any I hope at that point. (laughs) That is it for this week's episode. Again, I have to thank Stan for coming on. Whatever comes next for him, I know he'll continue to search for those answers somewhere in the skies that we all seek. And maybe even find some answers along the way. To read many of Stan's incredible essays and to purchase autographed books, head on over to stantonfriedman.com. Again, if you're in the east coast of Canada this May... Be sure to see Stan give his last ever presentation at the 2018 Esotericon Conference in Halifax, Nova Scotia. Stan will be the keynote speaker. I'll be speaking as well along with an incredible list of researchers that include Micah Hanks, Greg Bishop, Walter Bosley, Aaron Gillius, Holly Stevens, Tim Banal, and the host of the conference, Paul Kimball. 
The conference is completely free to the public. So please, come join us on May 18th, 19th, and 20th. More info will be available soon. To stay up to date, visit winterlightproductions.com. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, review, and share Somewhere in the Skies, wherever possible. To help Somewhere in the Skies and to receive bonus episodes, content, and rewards at many different levels, please consider becoming a Patreon subscriber today. To learn more and to contribute, visit patreon.com backslash somewhereskies. We're on Twitter at somewhereskies and Instagram at somewhereskiespod. For exclusive articles, news, past episodes, and to suggest guests and topics, visit our official website, somewhereintheskies.com. Next week, we are speaking to the 2018 International UFO Congress Researcher of the Year, Cheryl Costa. It's going to be an interview you won't soon forget. I'll see you here next Monday. And remember, keep your feet on the ground, but never stop searching somewhere in the skies. Somewhere in the Skies is produced by Third Kind Productions in association with the Entertainment One Podcast Network. To learn more, visit entertainmentonepodcast.com. What's up, UFOnauts? It's your UFO guy, Rob Christofferson. Have you ever been curious about the UFO phenomenon, but unsure of where to start? Have you ever wondered about just what crashed at Roswell? Have you ever wanted common sense advice about licking UFOs? The answers don't. Then check out the Our Strange Skies podcast, where we dive into America's rich UFO history and uncover what these sightings say about ourselves. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, and most podcast apps, as well as Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Don't forget to look up, because you never know what you'll find in Our Strange Skies. In Grey We Trust. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.